Hey everyone, Gomer here. Before we get started, we wanted to take a minute and ask for your help. Since 2014, Ascension has been creating free Catholic YouTube videos, podcasts, and articles to help people like you discover the truth and beauty of the Catholic faith. If you or someone you know has personally benefited from Ascension's work, please consider financially supporting this podcast. Any amount is truly appreciated, and we'll go to things like Ascension Presents YouTube channel, The Bible in a Year, Everyone Loves, The Handsome Father Mike Schmitz, and this show. Right. You love every knee shall bow. So let's keep it going to make a gift. Please visit ascensionpress.com slash support or click the link in the description of the show. Again, that's ascensionpress.com slash support. God bless. Far from being a collection of witty, pithy or inspirational quotes or sayings, the Beatitudes depict the countenance of Christ and they portray his charity. Welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. I'm Mike Gomer-Gormley, and I'm here to walk you through the essentials of what it means to follow Christ as a Catholic disciple. Let's begin. Last week, we examined the values and priorities of Jesus Christ, seeing how he is the standard for all of our values and priorities. And we also looked at how he challenges the sinful and all too human failed priorities and values that we have. Principally, we looked at how he attacked the vice of greed, the love of money, and what it means for us as Christians, especially for churchmen who need to look the needle in the eye. So we also looked at how Christ challenged foolishness as giving the temporal more weight than the eternal, looking at treasures on earth and giving that more of a priority than heavenly treasures. You will have your reward. So today what we want to do is go from what Christ attacked the most to ask, answering this question. What are the truest values of Christ for us to imitate as his disciples? So the problem is we see all the great things that Christ has done for us. You know, the full Paschal mystery of his cross, his resurrection, his ascension, even Pentecost, the Holy Spirit. We have all of these great gifts. We see his whole life lived as an offering of the son to the father. And thus his whole life is salvific. What happens when we have all this goodness? I mean, obviously we say, thank you. Eucharist, right? Is the thank offering that we say in response. But how do we act in faith? How are we faithful to what Christ wants to give us? How do we respond? Or in the words of the Bible, how now shall we live? The solution is that Jesus Christ is always communicating himself to us. So it is no wonder that the solution to how to remain faithful to Christ in our everyday lives is also bound up with how Christ was faithful to the Father. We're living a Christological life. Christ gives us both the sure path and the ultimate goal in eight sentences found in Matthew's gospel, verses 3 through 12 in chapter five, which we call the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes first correspond to the human heart's deepest longing. That is for us to be happy. Second, they fulfill the promises of Abraham and his people, thus concluding the Old Testament. And third, they show us the way of the Lord Jesus from the inside out, because that's the priorities of Christ. Start with the heart. This is our first point in talking about the Beatitudes. You might've heard the Beatitudes a thousand times. In fact, I think we've talked about them here a bunch of times, but, but let's read 
really slow down and do this, like we're talking about, a character study drawing on the insights of Frank Shee, two of his books, What Difference Does Jesus Make? and To Know Christ Jesus, but also looking at it with a lens to moral theology. How do we live the life of Christ in our own lives. That's the way the catechism views it. And in this, I want to draw on the guy who helped write this part of the catechism, Father Survey Pinker. So I want to I want to use two principles before we begin. First, in the last two episodes, we see a common theme. Christ cares about the heart. We start with the heart. This is the place of decisive encounter with God in prayer. And this is the object of his moral teachings. He wants to address the human heart in its desiring before it becomes an outward expression of sinful tendencies or virtue or whatever. And we can hear this in his language of, you know, it's not food that goes into the mouth and then into the stomach and then out into the latrine, but rather words that come forth for out of the heart come all manner of evil. We looked at that. We looked at Christ talking in the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about, you know, having lust towards a woman is like committing adultery with her in his heart. And this was actually drawn home in a theme or an example uh, last night uh, before I was preparing for this. Right now, I'm in the middle of Peoria, Illinois. I'm doing a two-night parish mission. And I gave up YouTube for Lent, except on Sundays, where I get my fix kind of to an absurd degree. And I was watching it last night, and a clip came up for the Daily Wire has a new Jordan Peterson thing on the book of Exodus. Now, Jordan Peterson, though he was a much beloved psychology professor at the University of Toronto, garnered worldwide attention for these series of lectures that he gave, two, three-hour lectures on the book of Genesis. And they are very fascinating. I do not agree. I mean, they're very psychologizing. And that's what he said. This is not a theological interpretation, but a psychological interpretation. But they can yield a lot of insights. And they got millions of views. So now he's doing this Exodus series, but he's doing it through the Daily Wire. So I think it's actually going to have uh, kind of a, a less of an important outreach. But the difference is, instead of him being alone on a stage, he has a panel of people, Christians, Jews, and others. And I don't really know all the people. I just saw this one clip. And Dennis Prager, who's a conservative Jew, a conservative speaker, radio show host, author, all that stuff. They brought up, Jordan Peterson brought up the notion of the Ten Commandments, especially thou shalt not commit adultery. And he brings up Christ's command that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. And Dennis Prager, this conservative Jew, takes umbrage with the emphasis on the eternal as opposed to the external. He brings the weight of Judaism to bear on the issue. And it's fascinating because he says, yeah, it doesn't matter about the desires of your heart, even to the point where he was giving permission to a fellow friend whose wife was, you know, disabled and whatnot, that it was fine for him to consume pornography and have sexual relief this way. And he said, my problem with Christians is they always emphasize the internal, but the Jews, uh, we emphasize, no, 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 don't act on it. It's the action that matters. And I thought that was fascinating because Christ starts with the human heart. This is the Christian difference. The second point that I want to drive home is that before we dive into the Beatitudes, there's an interesting observation that I made doing research for this in the catechism. Now, one of the things I do, because I am not smart, but I play one on TV and radio and podcasts, is I steal from all the best people and places. And one of those places that I go to first, besides scripture, is the catechism. And I did a word search for disciple and discipleship and all the little variants. And most of the time when it says disciple, it's just referencing the 12 or the 70 or, you know, the people that followed Christ. But sometimes it talks about discipleship and what it means for us to be a faithful disciple. Now, the interesting thing is, of all the parts of the catechism, little individual units, not just one paragraph, but you know, units of paragraphs, subcategories, articles, whatever it might be, whatever division they do, this article 
Focusing on Christian beatitude contains the density, the highest density of disciple, discipleship, the disciples, than any other part of the catechism, except with one other, which is the part of prayer that we covered two episodes ago. I found it fascinating that talking about our vocation to beatitude, which is the second article in the third part of the catechism, that it focuses on discipleship here the most. Okay, so enough talking about and setting the stage of discipleship and beatitudes. Let's actually begin. The Catechism wants us to start with our Christian understanding of the Beatitudes by linking it as the fulfillment in the words of Christ, in the life of Christ, and in the life of the believer as a fulfillment of the Old Testament. For instance, it says that they take up and basically reorder the desires of the, or the, the Abrahamic promises that Jesus's eight Beatitudes fulfill what was promised all the way back in Genesis. In fact, Matthew, in giving us the Sermon on the Mount, is depicting Jesus as a new Moses. Think about it. He fasts for 40 days. He's sorely tempted in the wilderness by the devil. He gathers then his disciples. Then he goes up a mountain in order to give them the new law. The new law is awesome. If you think about it in this perspective, and just as Moses gave the 10 commandments and then gives the book of the covenant, most Catholics don't know about this starts in chapter 24 of Exodus and following, but the book of the covenant was how they were to live, which is immediately broken with a golden calf. And then you get the book of Leviticus, which then is broken one generation later on the, on the plains of Moses. Moab by Baal of Peor, and then you get the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, so you have all this stuff that we think of Judaism, but originally the Sinai covenant was the Ten Commandments followed by the book of the covenant. And so when Jesus goes up the mountain to teach his disciples, he sits down saying, these are the eight Beatitudes. So he gives us the eight Beatitudes corresponding to the Ten Commandments as their fulfillment, and then he gives us the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what the Catechism says. The eight Beatitudes are at the heart of Jesus's preaching and his teaching. And they take up the Abrahamic promises, but in the hands of Christ, those promises are reordered not to an earthly land, but to the kingdom of heaven. So when we talk about the eight Beatitudes, we also have to realize this word Beatitude. What does it mean? In the Greek, it could be translated in one of two ways, blessed or happy. In the Latin, we use the word Beatitude, Beatitudo, which means happiness. The English word happiness is the same word where we get the word happenstance, which kind of predicates itself on fortune or luck, like you're lucky to be happy. But Christian happiness or beatitude goes much different than that. And now we have to have an interesting note on the sad, sorry state of morality today. Now, whether we're talking about Catholic, Protestant, or purely secular morality, morality today no longer accounts within its worldview of the notion of happiness as central to what it means to be moral. What do I mean by that? Well, you could say in all systems of ancient morality and medieval Catholic morality, there were three main things. There was freedom, human freedom. There was law, moral law, natural law, divine positive law, human positive law. There's freedom, there's law, and there's happiness. So if I believe that the God of the universe created me in his image and likeness and gave me the gift of freedom, I also believe that this same God who imposes the law upon me desires my happiness. So the law that he's imposing upon me from without actually takes root within that it becomes not an imposition, but an act of wisdom. 
that following his law is what leads to my good, which is ultimately fulfilled in the sumum bonum, the ultimate good of being united to God forever, which is my happiness. Then freedom becomes that sphere in which I shape myself in cooperation with God's wisdom and his grace to be happy. But once the happiness equation is removed, then the God who imposes his law upon me, the natural moral law, divine positive law, the 10 commandments, whatever it might be, then I view that in opposition to my freedom, that God is free to impose and I am powerless to oppose him. So that law doesn't become something that is a beautiful work of wisdom, but I mean, honestly, think about it. It becomes something that's imposed by will to power that God's sheer will because he's greater and more powerful than me. is the only reason why this is right. And that is wrong. And this filters into human law as well. We see in politics, let's be honest, it's no longer ordered to the common good because we don't agree what's common and what's good about it, but it becomes a contest of wills and every election cycle, right? This raw antithesis between freedom and law and a contest of wills is demonstrated for all of us. Simply put, my personal freedom is in conflict with the externally imposed law and the non-happiness of moral systems, whether Protestant, Catholic, or, or, or secular, fosters this division. But in Jesus, it was not so. Jesus begins, as the catechism says, the Beatitudes are central in the teaching of Jesus. So Jesus begins each of the eight Beatitudo, Beatitudes, each of the eight happies with the promise of his divine blessing something that is given to us corresponds to the longing of the human heart. So without further ado, let's read through them. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These eight beatitudes speak in the third person and he ends it with this switching suddenly into the second person. Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you, revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for thus did they persecute the prophets who were before you. The interpretive tradition through St. Augustine is that these eight beatitudes are really seven beatitudes because the eighth one takes up the promise in the first one of ultimate fulfillment. The kingdom of heaven shall be yours, right? The eighth beatitude, blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness sake, is the refiner's fire by which one through seven are purified and made holy, so the catechism of the Catholic church, I think in paragraph 1718 is some of the most rich and beautiful understandings in just such in just one paragraph of what the eight beatitudes are. Number one, the beatitude. So if you're a disciple of Christ and you want to take on his values, his priorities, the actions and attitudes of our savior, this is what the catechism says. The eight beatitudes depict the countenance of Christ and portray his charity. The countenance of Christ means the face of Christ. 
the countenance of Christ is what we long to look upon. In, uh, we want to see the face of God. We want to know the face of Christ. One of my favorite sayings of Pope St. John Paul the Great is he talks about the rosary as the contemplation of the face of Christ or the countenance of Christ through the eyes of the Virgin Mary. This is the heart. We want to see God. St. Augustine has this great line where he says, if God promised you to give you every wealth, health, riches, power, honor, and to do so forever, but it came at the condition that you could never see him, never fully realize your love for him. Or he gave you his face, his presence, his love, but you had none of those other gifts. He said, you're not really a disciple. And this is me paraphrasing. Unless you're willing to say, yes, I want your face, O Lord. Right? I want to see you and know you and love you and have your presence, even if I have nothing else. For a Christian disciple, hell is being without God. For a Christian disciple, hell is not suffering because God himself suffered. So the eight Beatitudes depict the countenance of Christ and portray his charity. Okay, let's go back through them. What is the countenance of Christ and his charity? Well, first, he is poor in spirit. Okay, second, he mourns. Third, he is meek. He hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He is merciful. He alone is pure in heart. He is a peacemaker, but he makes that peace how as the son of God in his own body of flesh, hanging from the cross, tearing down the dividing wall of hostility, St. Paul says, that separates Jew from Gentile, making one in the place of the two. Jesus Christ was persecuted for righteousness sake. So here is the countenance of Christ. Here is how he portrays his charity. He is always, he, you know, to anyone who is open to his grace, to, to his word, to his works. If you're poor in spirit, you're willing to enter into a relationship with Christ and suspend judgment. If you are mourning and afflicted, Christ comes to comfort you, right? This is his charity. His meekness is so as not to offend those who feel weak and beaten down by this earth, a smoldering wick. He will not quench a bruised reed. He will not break a broken heart is what it takes to be contrite. The great Psalm 51, the, the great penitential Psalm, the miserare Psalm says, a heart that you will not spurn, O Lord, is a broken and contrite heart. So Jesus comes to the meek and he is meek so that he can save the brokenhearted, right? But he also hungers and thirsts for justice, for righteousness, not as the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, which puts up a barrier to people entering into the kingdom because they are not meek. They are proud and haughty and vain. And Jesus Christ is merciful so that you can obtain his mercy. Jesus Christ is pure in heart. He has an undivided heart, an unalloyed. The Greek word is an unalloyed. An alloy is you take two metals and you melt them together. So for instance, Apple, in making the Apple watch, wanted a gold watch, but gold is a super soft metal. So what they did was they came up with a whole new metallurgic process to make gold three times harder by mixing in an alloy with it. But Jesus is saying, I want you to be unalloyed of heart, unmixed, con not confused, not this way and that, not tossed on the waves. You know, one day popular opinion goes here. Another day popular opinion goes here. Be pure in heart. 
And if you're pure of heart, you shall see God. If you worry about the popular opinion of others, then you're not going to see God in the flesh when these people walked, when Christ walked the earth with these people, right? And there was their, the source of their opposition because they were divided in heart. Think of Nicodemus in John chapter three, a Pharisee who comes by night in order to encounter Christ. And he questions him and he even seems like he's scoffing. How can a man who has grown re-enter his mother's womb to be born again, right? There was no purity of heart in Luke's gospel chapter 16. We saw this with the greed, right? He says the Pharisees, yeah, they might be zealous for the law and traditions of the law, but they have a divided heart because they're also lovers of money and they're lovers of standing out in street corners and obtaining spots of prominence and receiving the praise of men. You got to be pure in heart. You got to seek the will of God, come what may, because peacemakers, you got to be a peacemaker. Jesus, his charity is to be a peacemaker. And that is why he's the ultimate son of God. But if you want to follow Christ, you too have to be a peacemaker. Now, I always tell this whenever I'm, uh, I always use this example whenever I'm teaching this beatitude. Imagine there's a bunch of high school students and a fight breaks out. What happens at that? Everyone's excited. They all start yelling, fight, 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 fight. Everyone starts cheering. Now, imagine you want to be a peacemaker. You walk into the middle of that fight. What do you think is going to happen to you? Brothers, brothers, cast down your fisticuffs, right? right? Stop this. You know, this doesn't please God. You know, this is unjust. You know, this is wrong. You ought not to hit anyone, right? You ought not to engage in acts of violence. This is ridiculous. You're not allowed to assault people because of an insult or a difference. What do you think people will do to the one person who calls for peace and not the sword? They'll destroy you. And there's the eighth beatitude. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Jesus Christ is willing to be persecuted in order to portray his charity. And the disciples saw this every single day. They saw Christ that the moment the people want to celebrate him, my favorite story, John chapter six, it starts with the multiplication of the loaves. He feeds the thousands upon thousands and the people are ready as Archbishop Fulton Sheen, who comes from Peoria. And I'm about to go and see his, uh, his museum and, and the tomb that he has at the cathedral. He says that they were ready to make him their bread king. And out of fear of them wanting to carry him off to Jerusalem and crown him king, Jesus immediately retreats into a lonely place alone to pray. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were one of the 12, I would have been like, finally, finally, the people get it. Finally, it's our turn to have the fame that we want, not because they want to be famous, but because it's like, yeah, I've, I've hitched my wagon to this Jesus guy. And everyone seems to like, just get mad at everything he does. But now finally the tables have turned. They get it. Like we get it. The crowds are ready to exalt him. They're ready to put him on his shoulders and carry him to Mount Zion, crowning him King Jesus. Did you hear that? Le- Jesus. Hello. Jesus. Where'd you? Oh no. Where'd you go? Jesus. And he disappears from their sight. Then they go across. And they, and in the middle of the night, he walks on water, right? So no one can find him. He sneaks away to a lonely place to pray when red people are ready to crown him king. Now, my selfishness, my vanity, my haughtiness of heart, my lack of being uh, poor in spirit. I want to be rich in spirit, meaning I want everyone to acknowledge and give me affirmation always, right? I don't want to mourn. I want to be celebrated, right? So Jesus walks on water to avoid all of this. And so now I have to have this imitation of Christ who pulled away right when they were chanting his name because they will be chanting his name in a few short weeks, chanting his name with the phrase, crucify him, crucify him afterwards. 
And so we know the fickleness of the crowds. But in John chapter six, the fascinating thing is that's where many of his disciples leave Jesus as well. So let's apply the eight Beatitudes to our life. The next sentence of the catechism is that they express, the eight Beatitudes express the vocation of the faithful associated with the glory of his passion and resurrection. What does that mean for us? Well, if you look at the eight Beatitudes, this is not just, if happiness is the end, the point, the goal of all human longing, the deepest desire of the human heart is to ultimately be satisfied, fulfilled. We call it human flourishing, to rest in God, to enter into the joy of Christ. If this is the point of human life, Jesus does something fascinating where the end is also the means or the vocation. Remember, the word vocation means to call. And this is the vocation of the faithful is to become poor in spirit. What does poor in spirit mean? Well, it means to be humble, to have humility. The ancient Greek philosophers in their list of virtues were wrong. Aristotle would have viewed humility as offensive, but Christ Jesus, the perfect God, man, our standard of value and priority, he shows us that it starts with humility. Why? Because he's humble. It portrays his, his charity. It discloses and depicts the countenance of Christ. He is humble. He's God become man. And if God became man, uh uh-oh, what are we willing to do in response to the gospel? St. Paul says, I have endured every hardship and humiliation, shipwrecked a bunch of times, persecuted, lowered down in a basket from a city uh, to escape being killed. Like he he was stoned uh, near to death. Ultimately, he had his head chopped off. He was scourged twice, 40 lashes minus one, he says. So we understand that these persecutions come, but it's like, but if my Lord did this, How can I not? Am I here to curry the favor of the multitudes? Is this a popularity contest? Because I will tell you, evangelization fails when we turn it into a sick numbers game for the life of the church. It's not about recruiting. It's about making disciples. And a disciple is poor in spirit, right? A disciple has humility, right? We mourn. What what are we mourning? If we have humility, will we mourn our sins? We have humility enough to realize where I've fallen short of the glory of God. The righteous man repents seven times in a day. Lord, must I forgive seven times? No, 70 times, seven times, because we need it. So the mourning will be comforted. The Latin word cum forte means to be given strength. You will have strength. Strength to do what? To be meek. Meekness isn't weakness. Okay? Meekness We already talked about how Christ was meek, but meekness for us is power that is under principle, right? So Jesus on the cross could have popped off the cross at any moment and he could have annihilated all those who insulted him. But his meekness was he hung there because his mission, the principle that guided his life said that his power is to be applied some way else, right? He was there to do something other than just basically defend his own vanity and pride. And so you can think of being meek as the anti-vanity. If the Pharisees want to sit in the front and deserve places of honor, then we sit in the back and humble ourselves. For the first shall be last and the last, they're going to be first. So meekness is that anti-vanity at the heart of the Christian life. 
but also it's for us who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice. This means what are your true desires? What do you really hunger and thirst for? Now let's talk about being hungry and thirsting after righteousness or justice. They shall be satisfied. Jesus did this. So as disciples, this is our vocation to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So my question for you is, are you righteous in your hungering and thirsting, your most basic desires? Jesus is going now beyond the heart to the stomach. In the ancient Greek world, the idea of the different areas of our body kind of symbolize things. The heart was like the seat of emotions, the moral personality, all that stuff. The mind or the head was the seat of the mind, reason, the higher faculties, and our gut was this place of our most basic desires, even desires that we shared with the animals, although in a rational way. So you could say that uh, our hungering and our thirsting, our sexual appetites, all of those things that we share in a, with our bodily nature, what St. Thomas calls the sensitive appetite, the appetite of the five senses. This we share in common with the animals, although in a human way. And so the reason why like priests and deacons and whatnot, they'll tie a cincher, a little rope around their stomachs is because they're restraining their desires for the sake of something good or better. And that's the question. Do we hunger and thirst? Is our most basic desires being reoriented for the kingdom? And if it is for righteousness, then we will be satisfied. And one of the hardest things to do for people who hurt us is to be merciful. But we will not obtain mercy if we can't give mercy. Like the famous parable of the steward who was forgiven much, right? The king forgives uh, sums of millions of dollars that he could never pay back. And he refuses to forgive a handful of dollars, something that someone could have paid back. And so what happens? The, the, the king or the ruler, or the master takes away that initial forgiveness of the millions of dollars and throws him in debtor's prison. Okay, so we need to be merciful even when it hurts. One thing I will say to you is uh, mercy is not permission for people to hurt you. Okay. And it isn't saying some past hurt was quote unquote, okay, that you did that to me. It's refusing to allow the sins of others to own and control my heart, my mind, and my destiny. Blessed are the pure in heart. You and I need to be pure in heart. You know how easy it is to focus on 500 different things. But the, those who are pure in heart see, seek first the kingdom of heaven, right? So if we think about it in these terms, last week we said that true mature discipleship are those who begin to see the hereafter as more important than the here, or rather what happens here and now is shaped by and is given its dignity by what happens hereafter. And so putting stake in eternity, putting our treasure in heaven, putting our hearts in heaven, seeking first the kingdom of God is what makes us unalloyed. And I always think of Father Michael Scanlon's wonderful book, Let the Fire Fall, kind of his own personal story and testimony about St. Francis of Assisi and why he became a Franciscan. He said of St. Francis that he was so wholly given over to Jesus Christ that you could uh, steal his food and he would fast. You could beat him and he rejoiced in being persecuted for the kingdom. You could kill him and he became a martyr. He said, St. Francis of Assisi, because of the way he followed Christ, was untouchable by this world. And that's what it means to be pure in heart. Now, we already talked about peacemakers, but this is your vocation to make peace where there is no peace. For some of you, this piece means going into forgotten neighborhoods where it seems like no one sheds an ounce of love, of justice, or of tears in mourning for these people. 
And it means to love them with the love of Christ, to hunger and thirst for justice. In these situations, it means those of you listening to me as our parishes shift to what Fulton Sheen called the suburban captivity of the churches, that the inner cities, these parishes that will be closed down because they haven't shifted into an evangelizing mode of the surrounding houses and neighbors, the new demographics, the new neighbors that have moved in. We need to be peacemakers and do the work of reconciliation in the name of Jesus. And you know what's going to happen? The eighth beatitude, you will be persecuted. Doesn't matter. You're doing what's right, regardless of the consequences. You're giving yourself over to discipleship in Christ Jesus. This is your vocation. This is the vocation of the faithful who want to be associated with the glory of his passion and resurrection. If you want to be a fan of Jesus, you will not be associated with his passion and resurrection. If you want to be a follower, this is our bread and butter. Okay, so the paragraph on the Beatitudes said, said that the eight Beatitudes shed light on the actions and attitudes characteristic of the Christian life. It's not just what we do. It is the attitudes from which these things proceed. This is why it's so important for us as disciples. He also says, the, this, this paragraph in the catechism also says that the eight Beatitudes are paradoxical promises that sustain hope in the midst of tribulations. Two things, paradoxical and the fact that the word tribulations or trials and sufferings, tribulations is plural. If in the Christian life, there will be many crosses that we will have to take up and follow Christ. But this is fascinating. They are paradoxical promises. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom. The mourning will be comforted. The meek will inherit the earth. I thought it was the powerful, the domineering. I thought it was those with the will to power. And Jesus is showing us. In this age, in the age that has been given over to Satan, the elemental spirits of the air, as St. Paul says, in this age of corruption, yeah, it looks that way. But Christians, God has conquered the world. God has conquered the world. In the world, you will have trouble, but take courage for I have conquered the world. This is what sustains hope. What sustains hope is not the power of this papacy or this local bishop or this pastor or this lay evangelist or this podcast to finally win the day. Don't put your hope in men, put it rather in God alone. That's why we have hope because when human hope fails, Christian hope, because it's not based on my ability to fulfill it, Christian hope remains and sustains. Next is they proclaim the blessings and rewards already secured, however dimly for his disciples. Christ has secured for you the kingdom, comfort, inheriting the earth, satisfying your hunger and thirst for justice. He has satisfied your mercy. You will obtain it. However, however dimly you've attained it now, you will obtain it in its fullness in the, in the hereafter. You will see God. You will be called sons of God or okay, daughters of God, but we're sons of the sun. So that's what matters. You know, we're called the bride of Christ, right? Men have to be the bride of Christ. Women have to be sons of God. It, it's, all in, it's, all, it's all fun. It's all fun. It all evens out in the end. But then the last reward, the blessings and rewards, however secured all over dimly, however dimly, is the kingdom of heaven yet again for our persecution. And finally, I love this phrase, the very last one of this one paragraph. They have begun in the lives of the Virgin Mary and the saints. They've already begun. 
That's why we have the communion of saints and the church triumphant so that we never take our eyes off the prize since we are surrounded as Hebrews 12 says, right after Hebrews 11, which is the hall of fame of faithfulness in the Old Testament. He says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us therefore leave beside, leave behind us every burden and sin that clings to us so that we can run after Jesus, the leader and perfecter of faith. Every saint is a reminder. Every feast day, every, the whole liturgical calendar is a cry out to us to realize that that is the life that we are called to be imitators of me. St. Paul says, as I am of Christ, every saint canonized in the church can say that exact same thing. No one better than the blessed Virgin Mary who lives the state of being poor in spirit. I am, but the handmaiden of the Lord, let it be done unto me according to thy word. Mary walked the AP attitudes, lived the AP attitudes. We need to recover the virtues of Mary, the virtues of St. Joseph, and in imitation of them, become people of the AP attitudes. All right, we'll be right back after this break. I want you to text EKSB to 33777 to get on our mailing list. God bless you. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Father Mike Schmitz. I am the host of the Catechism in a Year podcast. If you've been following along with us, you know that God's plan for us is a plan of sheer goodness, that he wants to bring us into a relationship with him. You know that already. One of the ways that God actually brings us into this relationship and keeps us, sustains us in this relationship is through the sacraments. Again, you might know that already. You might further know that so many of us miss out on the beauty and the power of the sacraments. But Ascension has an answer to this. Ascension has created two new programs. One is called Renewed, Your Journey Towards First Reconciliation. The second is Received, Your Journey Towards First Holy Communion. We know that our youth, they're our future. And yet at the same time, it's so hard oftentimes to reach them with this incredible news of God's love for them in reconciliation, God's love for them in the Eucharist. If you wanna check out Ascension's new program, renewed your journey towards first reconciliation and received your journey towards first communion, go to ascensionpress.com and sign up for a free preview. All right, and we're back, and I want to show you how the catechism applies this to our life. The Christian beatitude is built upon the natural desire for every human person to be happy. That's why St. Pope John Paul said that great line, it is Jesus you seek when you dream of happiness. Google that phrase and read the whole quote. It is beautiful. He said it at World Youth Day, but it is Jesus you seek when you dream of happiness. So when I'm an evangelist and I'm teaching parish staff members how to evangelize, I say to them, many of us don't evangelize because we think we're judging people. I'm not judging people. People have a remarkable ability to make hell for themselves and others. So I want to show them that your, your, your cooperation with hell and darkness is defeating you. It's Jesus you seek when you dream of happiness. So my vision for people's lives and for evangelization is to draw them out of this hell of their own making in order to show them the happiness that they truly long for is only found in Christ Jesus. Now, when we talk about this happiness, Every human being longs for it, but it gets distorted. It gets distorted into the counterfeits. What are the counterfeits? Like wealth, health, pleasure, honor, fame, human achievement, however beneficial the catechism says in paragraph 1723, science, technology, all of this stuff. But true happiness is found in God alone, the source of our life, the source of every good and the source of ultimate love. So we have to purify. This is the practical aspect of the eight beatitudes and the call on every human heart to beatitude is we have to purify our hearts of bad instincts. We have to do the work of uprooting bad desires. 
and ridding ourselves of emotional attachments that are inappropriate for a Christian who wherein Christ is a standard of our values and priorities. So if my values go against Christ's values, if my priorities are not his priorities, I'm the one who has to change, not the gospel, not Jesus. So if I love money and I give this justification for it and I said, well, you know, Christ was speaking metaphorically. It's, it's, I'm afraid of identifying my value with his value. I'm afraid of getting rid of my value. And we also know this, this is, this is so bedrock practical. The eight beatitudes are not just the goal in the end but they're also the way to that goal. As St. Teresa Lazou, I believe it's St. Teresa Lazou, might've been St. Teresa of Avila. The way to heaven is heaven because Jesus Christ said, I am the way. So the eight beatitudes are Jesus. It's his own character. And so thus for us to adopt these actions and attitudes, we are conforming ourselves to Christ, which is our happiness, union with Christ forever. Do you see how brilliant this is? In the New Testament, there are four basic expressions of beatitude, of Christian beatitude, the coming of the kingdom. You find this in like Mark 4, 17, the vision of God, uh, Matthew 5, 8, 1 John 2, 1, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. We have entering into the joy of the Lord. I love that. Entering into the joy of the Lord, Matthew 25, 21 to 23. And then we have entering into God's rest, Hebrews 4, 7 through 11. And so the church kind of took all of these and we call it the beatific vision, seeing the face of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is what brings us happiness. We also call it resting in peace when a Christian faithful dies, right? To the faithful departed. And we celebrate requiem masses, masses for their rest. This is so beautiful. But God put us here, brothers and sisters, to know, love, and serve him so that we can be united to him for all eternity in paradise. The Beatitudes that he gave us is how the natural beatitude written on every human heart allows us to ultimately become partakers of the divine nature, as St. Peter says, and of God's own eternal life. And we enter into the glory of the Lord Jesus and the joy of the very Trinitarian life. You can't earn that. How does a creature earn the very inner life of the creator? Remember how the catechism starts. God, infinitely perfect, and blessed in himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man so that he could share in his own blessed life. God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, created us freely so that we could share in his own blessed life. And this is the end. The origin, we are made in the image and likeness of God so that we can share in his own blessed life. God's Majesty and glory makes it impossible for us to behold him, to see his face. That's why the angel, when Jacob was wrestling him, the angel put out his hand and snapped his, uh, you know, his uh, sciatica, right? He caused all the problems, gave him a limp for the rest of his life. He did it because the sun was about to rise, meaning you can't see the face of God and live. That's why his name was he who wrestles with God, Israel, he who contends with or strives with God. And so when we step back and we look at this, we see that beholding God's face is impossible for us. But what is impossible for man is possible for God. And so in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That rather than us being caught up to heaven and seeing his face, for none shall see my face and live, 
God veiled himself in his humanity, in the humanity of Christ Jesus. And so for us, the gateway to heaven, as St. Irenaeus says, and is said, read by every person who reads Psalm 95 in the morning office of prayers of the Liturgy of the Hours, the gateway of heaven is the humanity that Christ assumed. This is how he lived the beatific life. The Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, the Apostolic Catechesis describes the way, our path to heaven. It's sustained by the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we can walk this via, we can walk this way, this path to heaven, step by step. That's what it means to be a disciple. For your homework, keep reading Luke. Don't stop reading. It's going to be awesome. The rewards are great. God bless. <laughs>